Today on The Journey with Steve DeWitt, a message on Christ's commandment of love. The love that we are to have for each other, my dear, my dear brothers and sisters, is a love that supersedes all of the natural divisions that society typically puts up, the restraints that we are typically applying for caring for other people. Not in the church, those barriers go down. Jesus said in Matthew 22 that the two greatest commands are to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself, and that the entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Welcome to The Journey with Steve DeWitt, Senior Pastor at Bethel Church in Northwest Indiana. Today, Pastor Steve brings us to the book of John to unpack the supreme command of love. Listen online at thejourney.fm. Now let's join Pastor Steve for the first part of a message titled, A New Command. Let's talk a little bit about new and old. Here in America, it's very easy for us to lose our sense of what is new and what is old because we live in a fairly new country by international uh, standards. So if we see a house that is 100 years old, we think to ourselves, that's an old house like the farmhouse in the back of the Crown Point property, I think is around 100 years old. And we think, well, that is really an old house. In Europe, that's a new house, okay? That's a new house. I recently uh, replaced my iPhone. I had an iPhone 10, four years old. But some of you are like, that's appalling. That's so old. How did you even function, Pastor Steve? It's an old, that's an old iPhone. Uh, Dogs sound young. A 10-year-old dog, like, that doesn't sound that old. Then you have the, like, dog ear chronology thing. That's an old dog. But a 10-year-old human is still a child. And this is how it gets relatively confusing. Here's a great example. In Oxford, England, New College, Oxford, England, established in 1379. That's the new one. How old is the old one if the new one is that old? And so I'm getting to the point that it can be a little bit tricky when we think of things in terms of new and old. What is new, what is old, often depends upon lots of things. And our text today, Jesus calls a command a new command. But as I read the command, you're going to think to yourself, that sounds a lot like the old command. How is the new command different enough to be new from the old command, which is also very well established? And I hope today that the new command lands with freshness, with newness upon our hearts today and shapes the culture of our church and I hope shapes the culture of your heart. So with that said, we climb back up the stairs into the famous upper room And we have already seen Jesus wash the disciples' feet. He identifies Judas as his betrayer, somehow, though, confusing to the other disciples who aren't sure what that means. Judas has left the room and uh, did so after Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. And, And Judas took him up on that. And so Judas scampers away to go tell the Jewish leaders 
We've got him. He's going to Gethsemane. Get the troops. We're going to get him there. And our text now, chapter 13, verse 31, is this. When he, that is Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. That's a confusing sentence. We're going to get to it, okay? Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I have said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. May God bless this text to Bethel Church today. It says in verse 31, when he had gone out, who is the he there? It is Judas Iscariot. And once Judas leaves, the whole tone of the room changes because now for the very first time, it is Jesus and the authentic 11. For the first time, the evil of Satan, the evil of Judas and his presence there is removed. Everybody that is there is on Team Jesus. And for the first time now, he has those who are going to become apostles in the church. He has the authentic seedling church. And what he teaches about here is three things, glory, departure, and love. And glory and departure are themes that are going to come up later. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them here because he comes back to them. We're going to mostly focus on the new command to love. But let's get these others uh, uh, clear as well. Verse 31, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. The point that he is making here is that his own glory, Jesus' glory, and the glory of God now are interwoven in what is about to happen. You see there, now is the Son of Man. This is an important title, a self-designated title of Jesus. You might be familiar with Son of Man. It sounds a lot like Son of God. And so the kind of casual reader will think, well, Son of God, speaks to his deity, son of man, speaks to his humanity. And there is some truth to that, but it's much more nuanced, in particular, son of man. This is a title that is found uh, in the Old Testament, in Daniel in particular, and Jesus reaches back into the Old Testament and now applies that title to himself, saying that he is the son of man. And this title is not simply that he is human, but rather, it is a royal title, but it is also a title of suffering. And here you have these apparently contradictory truths that are brought together in Son of Man, that he is the suffering servant. He is the suffering Savior. He is both royalty and he is weakness. And if you think about where does that find its ultimate expression, it is on the cross of Jesus Christ, where there indeed, as the title said over his head, the king of the Jews, he is royalty. He is king as he hangs on the cross, but there in abject weakness and uh, pain and shame and nakedness hangs the king of glory. And those two seemingly 
opposite truths are what gives the title Son of Man its particular power. Now is the Son of Man glorified. Now, now that Judas has departed, now there are a domino, that departure is a domino of things that are going to very quickly bring all of these redemptive moments together. It reminds me somewhat of the, of the very powerful scene in Lord of the Rings where at Helm's Deep, uh, the, that Rohan has gathered there. They're behind the walls of, of Helm's Deep, the fortress, and, and the orcs have now come and massed in front of the walls. And uh, as they begin to charge the walls, Theoden, king of Rohan, says very sort of sternly, he says, so it begins. And that's the sense of it here. He hears Judas's steps out, down the steps, and out onto the street level, and he turns to his disciples and he says, so it begins. And indeed it does. Within 12 hours, Judas, who's just run out of the room, is dead. And Jesus will be hanging by nails, gasping for air. So it begins. The most important hours in all of human history, the very hours that your salvation and mine depend upon, now are set in motion as the Father purposed and prophecy predicted, and Jesus now is living. So it begins. What would you do if you had just a few more hours with your loved ones? You know what Jesus does? He turns to his disciples, and he doesn't say another round of wine. He spends his time, his hours, teaching them and praying, his high priestly prayer and at Gethsemane. That should tell us about what is important. He teaches them. And I think this is part of what gives poignancy to the whole series that we're doing. These are the final words of Jesus. He knows he's about to die, which I think as his followers makes them ever so precious to us. What does he say? And the very first thing that Jesus speaks of is his role in glorifying God. And this is a little bit of a confusing sentence. Let me, let me say it again, read it again. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Now, if you don't have a doctrine of Trinity, you stare at that and you go, I don't get that. But if we apply our doctrine of Trinity put and kind of infuse the, the words here with it, it makes sense. What is he saying? God the Son glorifies God the Father. God the Father will glorify the Son in all that is about to happen, and it will happen quickly. That's what he's saying. And what we see then is he is thinking about glory, the glory of his Father, honoring his Father, obeying his Father, and how God's glory and his glory are interwoven together in the events that are about to happen, preeminently his death on the cross. Verse 33, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I have said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Hear Jesus now with tender words, little children. This is not demeaning, this is affectionate, okay? Like a parent, dear ones, my precious ones, or as I say to my daughters, my lovey doveys, my little precious dear children. 
And here you have the disciples now, they're bewildered. They're like, why did Judas leave? I'm not sure what's going on. And what is Jesus talking about here? It's kind of confusing to me. They have no idea what is about to happen. But Jesus knows that he is about to be taken from them. He is gonna be taken from them by the Roman cohort in Gethsemane. He is gonna be taken from them in his death on the cross. And he is gonna be taken from them in his ascension to heaven 40 days later. All of these represent a relational change. We've been hanging out for three years now, but I'm about to go. I'm about to leave. And there in the quiet of the upper room, an evening meal, it's quiet, it's apparently calm. There's no indication of the torrent of events that define human history that are gonna happen in the next 16, 18 hours. But Jesus warns them, I'm about to leave. He is essentially here saying goodbye. Verse 34, and here's our focus for the message today. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this will all people know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And as I said at the introduction, he, he calls this new. And I want to talk about how is this new, okay? This sounds very, very familiar, this whole like loving your neighbor thing. If you read through the Gospels, you know there's the famous story where the Pharisee comes to Jesus and asks him one of the questions that was hotly debated as a hot potato issue of the day, which of the commands is the greatest command? They had over 600, they counted from the Old Testament, and they'd argue about it, and they're trying to trip Jesus up by his answer, and they, they say, so what do you say is the greatest command, Jesus of Nazareth? And you likely know. He said the greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And oh, by the way, the second greatest command is to love your neighbor as yourself. And if you remember in the story, the Pharisee's like, hmm, who's my neighbor exactly? Okay, And there he is trying to, what are the parameters? What are the limits to love here that I've got to fulfill so that I know that I'm obeying this command? And Jesus responds by telling a parable, a famous parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And you probably know that story of the, of the, you know, the Jewish guy that's beat up along the road and the Levite and the priest, they come walking past and they see him and they pass on the other side. And then along comes the Samaritan. The last guy who's supposed to be nice to a Jew is a Samaritan. And the, the Samaritan is good because he sees the need and his heart is filled with compassion and he wipes his wounds, and he puts him on his donkey, and he takes him to the hotel, and he pays the tab. And Jesus finishes the whole thing and says, which of the three was a neighbor to the man beaten up along the road? And uh, everyone has to acknowledge it's the guy that obviously showed love to him. Okay, so that and many other examples in Jesus' teaching have to do with love. And the disciples heard all of these parables. They heard all of this stuff. And yet Jesus says, I have a new command. Now in the upper room, hours before his death, the last words he has to say, I've got something new that I want to say to you. And it is this. You are to love one another. Love one another. How is this a new command? This is our outline, if you're taking notes. It is a new command, first of all, in that there is a new solidarity. There is a new relationship established 
by his death. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Notice what he says here. He doesn't say the new command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the old command. The new command is that we are to love one another. And who specifically are the one another's? Is this just a general command to humanity? Is this a command that we have to just love indiscriminately? Notice who he says it to. You are disciples here to love one another. And those 11 disciples represent the church. It is the littlest church. It is the the seeds of what will become the global and universal church. But those 11 represent the, the essence of the church. And as such, the command to love is speaking to a special kind of love and affection that brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow Christians, are to have for one another. Did you get that? It is a new command because there has never before been this group. There has never been before the church. It's gonna be inaugurated on the day of Pentecost and and off we go in the book of Acts and we see the spread of it and we're still seeing the spread of it around the world to this day. But the command is new because the, the circle is new. It says plainly that we are to love one another. The love that we are to have for each other, my dear my dear brothers and sisters, is a love that supersedes all of the natural divisions that society typically puts up, the restraints that we are typically applying for caring for other people. Not in the church. Not in the church. Those barriers go down. In the church, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And as such, the things that typically divide people in the church are not to be there because we are united in something that is greater and more valuable than whatever the division otherwise would be. So to ask you the question, dear friend, can you love a fellow Christian who is racially different than you. I mean, truly love them. Can you love a fellow Christian who is economically different than you? Can you truly love a Christian whose personality is different than you? Can you truly love a fellow Christian who is nationally different than you? Can you truly love a fellow Christian who is politically votes different than you? Now, some of you are like, well, I was good up to that point right there. But isn't that what the last two years have stressed in churches is the last one? I'll love anybody as long as they agree with me on the issues of the last two years. And if they're aligned with me, then we are one. It has not been a good display of Christianity in America the last two years because we have seen how people fail to live according to the new command that Jesus gave. We are one in Christ, and the gospel is more important than all these other things that people argue and divide over. And in a local church, we have to get that 
or there will always be things that we want to argue and fight about. Why do we stick it out together? We do it for Jesus' sake. Because he is greater than, he is a uniter than, his gospel is greater than. All of this other stuff that heaven will show was not really that important. The gospel is the main thing. Jesus is the main thing. And when in a Christian's heart he is the great thing and the main thing, that love extends to people who are very different than us in minor things because they are with us in the main thing. That was a good amen spot right there. In other words, it's one thing to be the good Samaritan and help somebody because they are your neighbor. It's a whole nother thing to help somebody because you realize this is a brother or sister in Christ. And the emphasis there is in in Christ. We do not see people the way the world sees people. We see people, hopefully, the way that God sees people. And God sees people as those who are under the grace of God and those who are not under the grace of God. Those that are the redeemed and those that are the unredeemed. And how well do you do with that, friend? How open is your heart to people who share the main thing with you but may disagree on the minor thing with you. It is the gospel that creates solidarity around here. I read an article, this is not in the notes, but it's important, it comes to my mind right now. I read an article that was summarizing the events of the last couple years and it, it made the argument that what we discovered is that in many local churches, it is actually not the gospel that is the uniting thing. It is cultural affinities and even political affinities that all along under the surface were actually the thing that kept us together. And no wonder when trials and troubles come to a local church, we, we sort of have this thing that happens when Christ is not actually the main thing, when it's not all about him. Pastor Steve, you're stepping on my toes. It's time to move on. If Jesus is your Savior, then you are my brother or sister. And that is the most important relational reality, both now and forever. Can you look at things that way? Can we see things that way? What a beautiful reality it is when we're all united in the love of Christ. You're listening to The Journey with Steve DeWitt and a message called A New Command. It's the first part of a two-part message, and if you tuned in late today or you'd like to hear the full message, just visit thejourney.fm. Well, here on The Journey, our aim is to guide you in your life journey towards the unwavering and immutable truth found in God's Word. That's why each day on the radio and internet, we take you into the depth of Scripture while making its truth easy to understand and applicable to your daily life. But as a listener-supported program, none of this would be possible without you. The journey relies in part on the financial gifts of our generous listening family. Your support helps keep us on the radio and the internet, sharing the gospel with listeners worldwide so that they too can discover God and His will for their lives. So would you help by giving a generous gift today? Just call 844-7-JOURNEY. That's 844-7-JOURNEY. 756 8763 or give online 
at thejourney.fm. And as a thank you for your generous gift, we'd like to send you a book titled Decision-Making and the Will of God. In the expanded 25th anniversary edition of this highly acclaimed work, author Gary Friesen examines the prevalent view on God's will today and then provides a sound biblical alternative to the traditional teaching about how God guides us. This new edition includes a study guide for small groups, insightful answers to frequently asked questions, and a guide to painless scripture memorization. Request a copy to read along with our current series or give one to a friend. Call 844-7-JOURNEY. That's 844-756-8763 or visit thejourney.fm. Well, that's all our time for today. I'm Tim Svoboda, inviting you to join us tomorrow when Pastor Steve DeWitt concludes the message, A New Command. That's coming up Thursday on The Journey. Today's program was produced and furnished by Bethel Church in Crown Point, Indiana.